Uh, good morning. Uh, again, I want to emphasize the renewal of membership. Last week I said, right, why is membership important? Uh, because we are a covenant community. We have a mutual responsibility to, for accountability uh, and prayer to each other. Uh, and you know, every Thursday I actually send out a text if you need prayers and anybody responds, I will pray. Uh, if you haven't gotten it, you want, you can let me know. I'll put you on the list. But more importantly, I was trying to pray through our membership. Then I looked through it and said, wow, got a lot of people. And uh, some of them probably are not around anymore. So every 10 years, we actually renew our membership. All right, so it is not updating your details. It's renewing, which means you don't renew, you'll be dropped out. And so I hope those of us will continue to renew. And once uh, the membership is updated, I think on a daily basis, I'll be trying to pray for different uh, members in our church. So, if you want me to pray for you, right, please go and update your membership. Alright, this series uh, is on when, when love is love. Is it just because we feel loving, that's love? Because our theme for this year is outreach driven by the love of God. And we have been talking about what is God's love. So, in this series, really, what is not? You know, what is not love? What kind of love is God's love? That's the question we're asking. And I also mentioned that uh, in the Bible, there are only a few texts that talks about homosexuality. Hello? Thanks. Something wrong. This is not working? Uh, hello? This is still here. <laughs> Somebody didn't put it in. <laughs> Alright, so this series is uh, when Love is Love. Uh, really, in the New Testament, there are only three verses that talks about uh, homosexuality. In the Old Testament, also only three. Genesis and then the two Leviticus passage. So next week, we'll actually look at it. Actually, what is God's design? Uh, last week, of course, I shared also, I invited a speaker, uh, a pastor who walked out of the gay lifestyle uh, to share with us um, his testimony. So I encourage you to come for the, especially the fourth week, last Sunday of August. Right, so today we will look at uh, 1 Timothy 1. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray for you to pour forth the love of God abundantly into our hearts that we'll see Christ lifted up. Um, to see that truly, Jesus, you came to save sinners of whom I'm the chief of sinners so that, Father, you will be glorified. And so we commit this time to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jeffrey McCall, he uh, was an ex-drug addict, uh, ex-male prostitute, and ex-transgender. One day on TV, he saw this tele-evangelist preaching and he was touched. The Holy Spirit convicted him. So he went on YouTube to look for sermons. As a result of that, he accepted Christ. And not only that, he released uh, his life, his gay lifestyle to the Lord and he walked out of it. And he started this thing called Freedom March. Essentially, they tried to go to different cities in the US uh, to have a parade to gather people who have walked out of uh, the LGBT lifestyle and also to equip the church on how we should respond. Another person called Luis Javier Ruiz, who is a survivor of the 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre. What happened was somebody took a gun, went to this gay club in Florida and started gunning down people. Later, I found out that it's probably more a terrorist act than really a hate crime. But nonetheless, Javier survived and so he later came to faith. And during the Freedom March message, he said, my message is not about uh, going from a homosexual to a heterosexual, but rather going from being lost to being saved. You know, both of their message is consistent. That change is possible. 
But what is the narrative of our culture today? Is change possible? They will say, well, we were born this way and so there's no need to change. Other people will say, change is impossible. People who walk out of this lifestyle are merely suppressing their desires. Well, what do you think? Is change possible? But more importantly, what does the Bible say? This whole year, we have, we have seen, right, throughout the whole Bible, and you can say the history of humanity, there's only one story. And what's the story? The greatest love story ever told from creation to Christ, from Christ to recreation. And that story is, that, is, the, is God unfolding His redemptive plan to save us. It means change is possible. How? Through the gospel. And so today from 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 to 15, we will see the need for the gospel. What is the gospel about the content of the gospel? And finally, our response to the gospel. So first, the need of the gospel, the content of it, and then the response. The goodness of the law is that it points one to the gospel. Why do we need the gospel? Well, the law shows our need. So here in 1 Timothy, Paul says to his disciple Timothy, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, why does Paul say this? In the verses ahead, he was talking to Timothy who was serving in Ephesus. There were some Jewish people who came and says, well, you believe in Jesus, that's good. But you must add the law. You must undergo circumcision, offer sacrifices. And Paul is saying, no, you don't. In other parts of the Bible, he's saying the law is not good if you, if you are depending on it for your salvation. Here he's saying the law is good. Why? He goes on to explain that because it shows us the beauty and nature of God. That we have fallen short of it and therefore we turn to the gospel. The law shows our need of the gospel and that's why it is good. It is not like that we are depending on it. If we try to depend on the law to justify ourselves, that's bad. But if the law points us to the gospel to be justified, that's good. Okay, so he goes on to explain why the law is good. Because it shows that we have fallen short. Realising that the fact that the law is not made for righteous people, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. If you think you're good, you don't need the law. The law shows that you're not good. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers or for murderers. Continues the list. The immoral men, the homosexuals, the kidnappers, the liars, the perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It is here that he mentioned the term homosexual. The second time he used in the New Testament, the first time was Romans 1. In this place, Paul came up with a new term, arsenokoitis. Okay? It only appeared twice here and later in 1 Corinthians 6. Nowhere else in Greek literature do you find this term. And so people who affirm the gay lifestyle to say that God actually accepts monogamous, loving, gay relationship. Um, they say that Paul here, he's not talking about, he's not condemning gay lifestyle. He's saying that there are other words for homosexuality which Paul could have used. So he probably was referring to male prostitution which was common. You understand the argument? If he was saying homosexuality is wrong, he could have used other terms, but he did not. He coined this new term because he's actually referring to male prostitution. But again, we realize actually it's not true because he got this word from, actually it's a literal translation from Hebrew, zakir mishkaf, which means you lying with a male. It's used in Leviticus 20 and 18. You see, in 300 BC, before Christ, 
they translated the Hebrew Bible, which is to us the Old Testament, into Greek, right? Because their next generation, their, their Hebrew is not so good. Like our children, 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 Chinese, not so good. Same, same idea. They translated to Greek. And so LXX70, because there were 70 translators in a project, so it came to, known, came to be known as LXX or the Septuagint 70. In Leviticus 20 and Leviticus 18, it translated the word as Arsenos Koiten. So when Paul was in 1 Timothy, essentially he took these two words and put them together as a compound word. So he coined a new term, but it was not out of nowhere. It was actually out of the Old Testament, and hence what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 1 is simply male lying with male. But let's not lose sight of the whole, the, the whole picture. Just only look at the tree and don't see the forest. It's not just talking about homosexuality, right? What's the point of this text? The law is, is good. Why? Because we fall short. And because we fall short, it turns us to the gospel. Hence the next verse he says, you see, but he lists down all the things that we fall short. Of course, it's not an exhaustive list. It says, according to the glorious gospel. Because of that, we turn to the gospel because we know we have no hope. Therefore, we turn to the gospel to be saved. So that is why the law is good. What is the gospel? The gospel says we cannot save ourselves. God accepts us not because we are moral people or we are immoral people. Because God's desire is perfection because His nature is perfect. And the only way we can be reconciled, accepted by a perfect God is by the perfect sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, He took our sins and put on Himself so that we may get his life. That is the glorious gospel. And as a result of that, we are saved. And so sometimes we think, when we ask this question, we, this point is about the law. We say these laws are meant for people who believe in God. But people don't believe in God, so why should we impose our standards on others? So sometimes we talk about this issue, people ask me, but oh no, I don't even believe in God. Why should your standards be imposed on mine? Now let's be clear, we do legislate morality. We have laws against pedophiles, why? Is it because everybody agrees pedophiles is wrong? No, right? I'm sure those who are pedophilic thinks it's correct. But yet we have a law. So even if that person doesn't believe it, well, most of us believe it. And when it comes to the law of God, I think there are two ways to look at laws. One is those laws that can change. Like speed limit, right? Certain place, PIE, 80, you over is over the speed limit. Some place, 90, cannot go more than 90, right? It can be changed. Or for me, 6 a.m. in the morning when I'm going for my kids, 100 is not, a, not, is, is not breaking the speed limit, right? Changes with time too. Now, some laws, on the other hand, cannot be changed. For example, fire. You put a hand on the fire, what happens? You burn. You jump off from the tall building, what happens? What if one day, everybody in the world comes together and votes, say, you know, fire don't burn. When you jump, there's no gravity. Everyone in the world agrees. Let me ask you, you put your hand in the fire, does it burn? Of course. You jump off the building, will you float? No. You see, so when we look at the law of God, it's like that. There are some laws that describe how they should manage the nation of Israel. Some laws that describe how they should offer sacrifices. But there are some laws, the moral laws that reveal the nature of God that cannot be changed. And we understand that God's law, we've talked before, is not burdensome. He provides us this framework within which we have freedom, within which we have full life because that's God's desire. 
If we transgress those laws, we will face the consequences. You know, we cannot pick and choose. You want to have a healthy body? What do you do? Well, eat well, sleep well, exercise. You don't exercise, don't eat well, don't sleep well. Do you think you can have a healthy body? No, we can't pick and choose. Just like this person. He went to a little island for vacation. And there are only a few roads on the island. He got there late, so he told the driver, let's get to the hotel as fast as possible. Wow, so the taxi driver sped, you know. The first red light, zoom, he went, ran across. Second red light, he blew past the second red light. So the guy, he looked at the driver and screamed at him. He says, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get us killed? Now the driver smiled and said, oh sir, don't worry, you know. My cousin taught me how to drive and he drives this way all the time and nothing happens. And then as he was saying, right, the traffic light in front of him turned green and the driver slammed the brakes. It stopped right in front of the green light. And so the tourist was flabbergasted. He says, it's green light, why don't you go? And now the driver turned and screamed at him. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to get us killed? If I go on green light, what if my cousin is coming from the other side? You see, we don't get to choose. Either you go on green and stop on red, or you, you go on red and stop on green. We cannot choose, I mean, we can only choose either, not both. Likewise, when it comes to the law of God, we may not believe God exists. We may not agree with His laws. But my friends, the existence of God and the truth of His law is not dependent on you. We will still face the consequences. You don't believe, you try lying, lying to people. You know, liars is very, have a very hard time because we forget what we told to whom. Right? I tell you this, I tell you this. After a while, I say, what did I tell you? You don't believe, you commit adultery and see what happens. How he eats at you, how he eats at your family. So when we see the law of God, it is not just also for the individuals. It also affects the family, affects the society. And that's why last week I said, the Roman Empire crumbled eventually because of its moral decadence. It's not just an individual's choice. And so, Paul here shows us that the law is good. Why? Because it points us to the gospel. And so what is the gospel? Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. And so he continues. He talks about the gospel and then he breaks out into thanksgiving. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. He says God gave him strength God deemed him to be faithful. God gave him this opportunity to serve. He's filled with thanksgiving as a response to the gospel. Since formerly I was a blasphemer, he blasphemed Christ. He went around persecuting Christians. And you know our first introduction to Paul, remember what happened? The first martyr of the church is Stephen, right? He was being stoned to death. And then out of the blue, we're introduced to this new character. Say Paul was standing there. And then he went on to talk about something else. And then later, then they talk about Paul. It's like, huh? What, what, is, what is this? This one line that talks about Paul because Paul, what, what was he doing standing there? I don't know. Maybe he instigated it, okay? But anyway, we do know he was on the road to Damascus, Syria to persecute the Christians when Jesus appeared to him and he was converted. And so Paul says, you see, all this is my past, but thanks be to God, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. The word here is super abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. When we think of the gospel, do we respond in gratitude to realize what we have is the grace of God, that God gives us out of His abundant grace. 
Another uh, translation from the message from this text, for this text, it says, I'm so grateful to Christ Jesus for making me adequate to do this work. He went out on a limb, you know, entrusting me with this ministry. The only credentials I brought to it were invictive and witch hunts and arrogance. But I was treated mercifully because I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know who I was doing it against. Grace mixed with faith and love poured over me and into me, and all because of Jesus. Then he goes on to say, it's a trustworthy statement. It's something that circulated at, around the churches at the time. Deserving full acceptance, what? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of sinners. Paul says Jesus came to save sinners. Who are sinners? Well, according to Scripture, everyone. Everyone who is unable to hit the perfect standards of God. And yet Paul didn't do this to call out the sins of others. He says, I am the foremost of sinners. And this is important because if we are just saying you are a sinner, we put ourselves above others in a superior position. You have problems, I don't. If we think we are just sinners, if we have no hope, we are like a worm, nobody should listen to us, it's on the other extreme. But the gospel is a third way. I'm not superior, I'm not the worst, I'm not like terrible because Christ saved me. I am not above you or below you, I come alongside you to say what? To say that we are sinners but Christ came to save us. And he points out to himself, I'm the foremost. Do you think, really think Paul is really that bad? Surely not, right? He's quite a righteous person. But I think this is part of spiritual maturity. The more we know God, friends, the more we realize our own sin, our own imperfection. The more I come closer to a source of light, the clearer I see the dirt on my body. And so, Paul says, you know, of, the, of sinners, I'm the foremost. And this attitude is important because then it determines how we stand on the truth and yet at the same time love others. <clears throat> the point here is that we are all sinners because we have seen nature, right? Look at a baby in the crib. Are you so cute? But you are a sinner. Right? That's true, you know? Because the sinful acts will come later. They already have the sin nature. Means we are predisposed to sin, right? So if I'm predisposed to sin, am I held accountable for my sinful acts? Should I be? Because I was born this way. Well, why I talk about this? In 2015, there was this study presented by UCLA and then immediately after the study, the press release was they found a gay gene. Dr. Eric Villian, who was in charge of this study, he himself was a gay man. He came out and said that, you know, my study has nothing to do with the gay gene. So he clarified they didn't discover the gay gene, right? But up to today, we still perpetuate this idea that there's a gay gene, they're born this way when all the research suggests that actually it's inconclusive. We don't know. So when we talk about this gay gene, what, what does it imply if we really find it? Because after reading this article, I thought, okay, so what if we find a gay gene? What does it mean? I'm born this way, I have no choice. While some people are predisposed to alcoholism, right? They say they found a genetic link. Does it mean that person is not accountable for his actions to become an alcoholic? Or years back, you know, when I'm out of anger, I, I hit my kids, right? And then I felt so bad after that, you know. So I told my accountability partner, I said, oh yeah, I messed up my children, you know, for life. Then he says, don't worry lah. The moment you gave birth to them, you already messed them up. And I said, what? what? What do you mean, man? He said, yeah, you gave birth to them, you passed original sin to them. Oh, he's very theological. I thought, yeah, it's from Adam, original sin, passed down one generation to generation to generation. How does original sin get passed down? Is it spiritual? 
Maybe it's genetic too, you know, we don't know. We don't know, but we know it's passed down, right? So, the point is this. We are predisposed to sin, you know that? We all have sin nature. Does it mean God doesn't hold us accountable for our actions? So someone told me before, you know, I have this gay, if you, there's gay gene, I'm born this way. It's just like skin color, you know, I'm black, I'm white. I have no choice. I say, that's true. No choice. Well, in the Bible, it doesn't say black or white skin color is sinful. But sexual acts against the design of God is. Being a heterosexual man, I'm predisposed to want to, because that person, uh, he believes of the survival of the fittest, right? So say, well, our nature, our impulse is to propagate as many children as possible. That's why I have this one I'm predisposed to having multiple sexual partners. Does it mean God allows it? And so, the text here tells us the content of the gospel that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I'm the chief of sinners. When we call out sin, we are not putting ourselves in a superior position. Just like last time before I became a Christian, I always wonder why Christians that call people sinners. You think you're better than me? But it's not true because we understand Paul shows us, tells us that of all the sinners, I am the worst. The more I know God, the more I realize I'm sinful. So how should we then respond to the gospel? 1 Corinthians 6, Christ came to save gays and everyone else. There's no qualification. He came, the gospel is effective for everybody and all we have to do is to respond by faith. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He's rebuking them. Don't be deceived. And then he defines the unrighteous. Neither fornicators, meaning you're not married but you have sex. Idolatrous, not adulterous, meaning you're married and have sex with someone who is not your spouse. Not effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, the same word, asinokoites. The third time this, this concept appears in the Bible and the second time Paul used that term. We are very determined that term is a translator from Hebrew to say lying with men. But gay affirming people are saying that actually um, the revisionist argument is that Paul was not condemning, was condemning homosexual abuse, not responsible homosexual behavior. He's calling for temperance, not abstinence. Because later in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 9 and 10, it talks about self-control. But we see that's not true, right? Because firstly, there's no abuse, the word abuse appearing anywhere. Secondly, if it's calling only for temperance, how does it apply to the other behavior on the list, like adultery and fornication? Is there such thing as uh, moderate adultery? Once a year, I commit adultery. That's self-control. No, of course not. It's just list all those behaviors. But again, I wanted us to deal with this text because you see, the Bible in the New Testament only talks about it three times. And each time is clear. You see, when we want to understand the topic in the Bible, we take out all the instances that appear and then we analyze what it says. If there are some difference each time, then we need to look into it further to understand what is it the Bible is saying. Okay? Like women leadership. Different places talk about different things. We have to go and understand it. Okay, I don't want to wait into this water here. But uh, it's different, right? There's some inconsistency, so we have to go understand. But when it comes to this topic, homosexuality, three times, there are no inconsistency. Very clear. Alright, but again, that's not the main point. What's the main point? Paul's main point is in the next verse. He says, such were some of you. Past tense. 
but you were washed, were sanctified, were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Is change possible? Paul is saying, yes, you were like that, but now you're not. Now, are they still committing these acts? Are they still doing all those things? Yes. That's why Paul brings it up here, right? If they were not sinning, why does he have to warn them? He's warning them. He says, don't be deceived. Don't do all these things. You were like that. You have already been sanctified, been saved, been justified. Don't go back and do what you used to do. So when we say the gospel changes people, we have to be clear, especially in the topic of homosexuality. It's not about from homosexuality to heterosexual. It is from one who is lost to one who is found. If there's anybody who believes that change is possible in the world, it must be us as Christians because we have experienced it ourselves. What is the word for change in the Bible? What's the biblical word for change? Repentance. Repent, metanoia, meaning turn, change your mind. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about God. In the past, you don't believe there's God. Now you believe there's sovereign, loving God. In the past, you think God is just a judge. Now you understand God is a father who loves you who sent his son. Change your mind. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about yourself. Once we were believing that we can save ourselves, we can justify ourselves, now we realize we're depraved sinners. We have no hope and that is why we need the gospel. Once we didn't believe God could love us, now we believe that I am a child of God. Change your mind. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about sin. We used to not think that these are sins. As long as it makes me happy, nobody knows I will do it. Now we know this is displeasing to God. And so if there's anybody, friends, in this world that believes change is possible, it should be us. And that is why when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, in our, the thing we published, pastoral guidance on this topic, we said we don't use the term gay or homosexual, but instead same-sex attracted. Because labels are not just words used to describe a person's inclinations or behaviours, but they are loaded with ideas about who a person is. What he's saying is that, you know, if I say I am a drug addict, I am a gambling addict, or I have a gambling addiction, I have a drug addiction, it's different. One is I have, means I can don't have. One is I am, wow, that one very difficult to change. That's identity. So Matt Moore, who is a Christian author who walked out of the gay lifestyle, he says, I didn't see Matt Moore as just a man. I saw Matt Moore as a gay man. Sexuality becomes a defining mark of who I am as a person. Instead of trust of my truest identity marker is my position in Jesus. It's not who, who I am ultimately is a child of God. It's who I am in Christ. It's not who I choose to sleep with who I not choose to sleep with. So he goes on to say, right, you believe sexual orientation is a relatively new concept. In the Bible, there's no such thing as orientation. It's just acts. Everything listed is their behaviours. Since I don't believe the scripture supports the idea that each person has a fixed, immutable sex of sexual desire that they are born with. It's like appetite. You go on a diet. Sometimes you eat more. Sometimes you eat less. When we know Christ, certain things changes in our life. So finally, it says, we all possess a sexuality and that sexuality has been distorted by sin. So perhaps a better term is have same-sex attraction rather than I am gay, I am homosexual. No, I am a child of God. 
And of course, it doesn't just apply to this area of sexuality, right? The gospel applies to all of us. We all have our own problems. Our lives have been distorted by sin. And yet our identity is not in our careers, not in having a family, not in having children, how they perform, but that I am a child of God. And so is change possible? You bet it's possible. What is the change we're looking for? Not the change from being homosexual to heterosexual. God's call for homosexual and heterosexual is holiness. The change is how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we view sin, how we view life. A change because the gospel transformed our life. This person, Kevin Witt, he says, I lived a life of much gender confusion and much abuse, verbally, physically, sexually, by my father. I knew there had to be another way. If God can change me, He can change anybody. Kevin Witt was an ex-transgender. He claimed to have slept with 50,000 men in his life. Don't, know, don't ask me how he got to 50,000. But later, he became a Christian and he changed. And he asked, you know, he said, people ask me about conversion therapy. I don't know what I said. Maybe I heard some electrocution. He says that, you know, the people in my community who walked out of this lifestyle, we are not familiar with conversion therapy. We have never heard about it. But what we have experienced is conversion. And that resonates, doesn't it? We have experienced conversion. What it means, I think each of us is different, but to me, it's a radical change of direction of my life. I know in the instant that I belong to someone else. The greatest comfort in my life and death and hope, my greatest hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to Christ. Question one of the Heidelberg Confession. You know there's a change. We have experienced conversion. Yes, I'm known as a power survivor, but I really want to be known as living proof that God does transform lives. Change is possible and we should have the right to share our stories. Angel Colin was one of the Powell's nightclub survivors. He was shot, lying there where blood was bleeding profusely. He told God, you know, when I was in my mother's womb, you told her that you have a special plan for me. She shared with me, I never believed. But if I survive this time, I will follow you. He recovered from his gunshot and became a Christian. And in his speech he shared, he says, now, you know, when I see sexual temptation, he still feels the same sex attraction. He says, when I see sexual temptation in the eye, I can say, I don't want to pursue you. I want to pursue Christ. Because my ultimate identity is not my sexuality, but who I am in Christ. How do we overcome the sins and challenges of our lives? Because we realize that we are no longer defined by all these things, our job, how the world sees me, my need to be recognized. I'm defined by who I am in God. And when you realize God loves you with His super abundant grace, like what Paul says, it is freeing. It frees you from performance anxiety, right? I don't need to perform to, for anybody, you know. I just need to live a life for God because He loves me. That's freedom. That's what it's talking about. Kathy Grace Duncan, she says, I'm changed, I'm free, I no longer struggle with attraction to women. I'm grateful to my Heavenly Father, my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For 26 years of her life, she lived as a man. From the age of kindergarten, she knew she wanted to be a man. Why? Because she saw how her father abused her mother. Later, she was abused by a male relative and reinforced the idea in her that women are vulnerable and weak. So she wanted to be a man. So for 26 years, she lived as a man. And then she met Jesus and her life changed. Again, change is possible because of the gospel. 
So when we look at the gospel, it says that the response to it is realize Christ came to save gays and everyone else. We are not just picking on one particular sin, but all sins. And people who have this same-sex attraction, they are not strangers, they are not evil people, they are just normal human beings who have this struggle, just like us have all these struggles. And so when I talk about this, I do want to clarify because apparently in some of the DGs last week after discussion, uh, there are some questions. Firstly, we are not against same-gender relationship, meaning if you're a girl and you have a girl, good girlfriend or I have a boy have a good boyfriend, that's okay. We are talking about those sexual, homosexual relationships. All right? Secondly, um, we say we, are, we, are, we welcome all kinds of people to worship with us because the gospel is for everybody. All right? But we do say that, yes, if you want to join membership, you want to be baptized, you want to serve, we do have certain things that we believe of the Christian faith, certain truths that we will not compromise. Okay? And we have to accept it if you want to be part of this membership. Okay? And the key is repentance. That I agree that uh, this homosexuality is a sin, although I'm struggling with it. Just as I agree uh, that pride is a sin, but I'm struggling with it. I agree with other kinds of things. So the, the key is repentance, that we agree, but we want to deal with this. We want Christ in our lives. And th that's the mark that we draw. Alright? And so Christ came to save sinners and everyone else. The truth is, how do we then stand for grace and love? Because sometimes we are afraid to share the gospel. We wonder how the people around us will look at us. Will we be rejected? But you know, you remember, we are here today because somebody shared the gospel with us. Because somebody loved us enough to invite us to church. Because somebody loved us enough to be a Christian witness. Because somebody loved us enough to give us a book. And hence, now that we have experienced it, how do we show this to others and yet not compromise the truth? Um, my ex-professor, who is in charge of the counselling department in Dallas Seminary, he said once he was invited to a college to talk about this topic, and he met a pastor of the biggest uh, gay church in the world. He says we are so different in character and theological positions. You know, but after these years, uh, I treat him as a friend. There was this, during my sabbatical year, I was doing a research on homosexuality. So I called him up. I said, can my wife and I attend your worship in, for this year? And he welcomed us. So I had many conversations with him. Now, even though my theological position has not changed, my operating theology has, has changed. He says, how do we interact and love people who are so different from us? And that's a question we need to ask as Christians. We say we have been transformed by the gospel, but yet there are people around us that we don't like, right? Offend us, they are different from us. How do we interact with them? And so Dr. Barnes, he, he said he talked deeply about this topic and he wrote a few of these things, actually a long list. But essentially, what he's doing is going back to the gospel. What did Jesus do for us? How are we supposed to respond? How does the love of Christ compel us? How does the Spirit help us? And so essentially, at the end, you know, what we need is not merely a life that pursues holiness. What we need is a life that, that has been touched by the grace of God. What we need is not a heart that is morally restrained and say, I don't want to sin. What we need is a heart that has been supernaturally transformed by the Holy Spirit. What we need, friends, is not just a theological knowledge or truths, but the Holy Spirit teaching us how to live out love without compromising the truth. Is it difficult? Of course it is. Theology is black and white, okay? We have some arguments, but generally it's clear. But humanity is not. It's complicated. 
And it's up to us, knowing the truth of God, discerning the Spirit's leading, to know how to apply, apply this truth to different people. How do we show love uncompromisingly while standing on truth? So Dr. Barnes ends with this quote. He says, Only the gospel change heart will free us and empower us through the compelling love of Christ. May we who have experienced the grace of the gospel, who has been transformed by the love of God, learn this truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I, I and no one else is the chief of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we want to give thanks to you. Even when you look at your word, Lord, all the three instances that talks about this issue on homosexuality comes with the gospel. In Romans, we see that the gospel is the power to justify, to give righteousness. Today, we see the gospels shows that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm chief of sinners. First Corinthians tells us that we were once like that. We were once sinners, but now we are called as saints. Not because we are moral, but because of Lord Jesus, what you have done. I pray that your spirit will pour forth your love abundantly into our hearts and teach us to love truly. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.